Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Okay, every week I'm kind of trying to give a little runway, a ramp up, so that we're, we're all tracking on the narrative structure of Mark and, and a thesis. I keep saying a thesis. And, and the thesis that begins in Mark chapter 1 is that this is Jesus Christ. The, I don't know what I was trying to do with that. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the story has been a sequence of proofs, illustrations, uh, demonstrations, all along the way. And all along the way, he's been doing things, acting in a particular way, that has continued to prove the thesis or advance the thesis for the skeptic, to challenge the cynic who wonders if this is possible, to charm with joy the seeker who's hungry to find that a God has been in the world. And so he is taking this thesis that the Son of God has come, he's trying to prove it, illustrate it. He's very pastoral. He has a, he, he has a very evangelistic too. He has, a, he, has, he has kind of an unapologetic way. He really wants to get, get you to respond. It's part of his structure. Now, we have just been watching uh, he, he proved three things. He was Lord of the storm. He, you know, you remember the winds and waves of Bam? And then he's Lord over the legion. You know, that scary horror movie scene with the, the, the demon that's legion. And then finally, Jairus' daughter, he's Lord of death. He is the Lord of life. He raises the dead. But then we get, a, we get to a road bump because there's another theme that's going on. And as Christ, as this theme advances through the, through the book, as this thesis is advanced, there is a problem, a consistent problem from the religious, from the demonic, from, uh, from family, from, and ultimately we're going to see too, even from, we actually have seen it if you were paying attention, Mark is, uh, I believe Mark represents a, an eyewitness account and part of that proof, part of that demonstration in the grammar is the disciples talk to Jesus rudely. It is rude. They're rude to him a number of times. Like, and Mark, I think, catches that so clearly because Mark, I believe, is written under the direct input of Peter himself. So anyway, uh, even his, uh, but we're going to find even his friends. We'll put his friends here. So, uh, I know my handwriting is illegible. It's more for me than it is for you. All right, so religious, family, demonic, and as the Son of God is going through, he's going through a kind of gauntlet. Have you ever heard that expression? Going through the gauntlet? Running the gauntlet? It's an old idea. A gauntlet, it actually, it's not, it has nothing to do with the glove from a gauntlet. It's a glove from the Middle Ages. It, but it has nothing to do with it at all. It's, a, it was a, it's actually from a Swedish word, but like to run a line or something, but, but uh, he's running a gauntlet. Here, this kind of culminates, one of the culminations of that is here as he sends out the disciples. All right, so let's see what we can, let's read it. Um, we're going to read about Herod. This is somebody, could somebody get me some water, please? Thank you. And uh, we're going to read about Herod. This is not the Herod that's uh, in, the, in the Christmas story. This is the Herod, his son, his son. Uh, and uh, 
He called, and he called, this is Jesus, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey, thank you, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you Depart from there, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet. It is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said... John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are working him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man, a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he, he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I wasn't, I wasn't, for some reason I was complaining to somebody this week. I just didn't, I just didn't feel like preaching on this. And uh, that's one of the good things about going through the Bible, the way, we, the, way, the way I preach every week through a text that's sequential, is that it's kind of like the Bible says, or God says to me, I don't care what you want to preach on. This is what you're talking about next. I'm like, eh, it's not, eh, what? well, the reason I was frustrated is 
it's easy to want to find a moral in a Bible story. It's just very tempting, especially a story like this. Is there a moral here we could? What's the moral of the story? That's, by the way, a very bad way to read, read God's word to begin with. But I, I'm still, you know, you get a story like this. Kind of, what's the moral of this story? What? But then I was, you know, that's kind of chewing on me. And I'm kind of irritated by it still. And, and I'm kind of, mostly because uh, there's, all, you know, I'm, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't like it where it was going. But then, then something, something began to work in my heart. I, I, I'm going to say it's the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> something happened because I, I've been trying to understand why did Mark put it in there? Now, you may say to me, well, Mark just wants to tell the story. Well, no, no, no. These men, these ancient men, when they recorded and reported the activities and the things that Jesus did and the activities surrounding his coming, they selected things. They picked things and they dropped them. They included some and not others. Mark, for example, doesn't include John's doubts here. Why doesn't Mark include John's doubts? Because John's doubts, he does have doubts when he's in, in prison. He's wondering if this was all worth it. He's scared. It's a good thing for us to know. But that's not what Mark's point is. And, I, and as I realized it, I realized that in one sense, this is, a, this, this, is a pol, this is another political, the political part of this equation, of the religious, the family, the demonic. In a sense, it's this, and it becomes a foreshadowing. You know what a foreshadowing is? A foreshadowing in the narrative. It's describing why, what's going to happen to Jesus. And then, then you understand, if you go back in, uh, back in Mark's narrative, um, the Son of God, because he's the Son of God, like I really believe that, you know, he's a king. A king has a herald. Who was his herald? He said he was coming. John the Baptist. And so we ought to realize that if the herald... If the herald of the king gets killed, what's going to happen to the king? This follows, you see? It's kind of a certain sort of logic or inevitability about it in the story. If they're going to kill the, ki- the, the, the herald, they're going to kill who the herald has announced. And so, and so in, in the story, that there's a certain, in fact, I don't have a big enough board. Um, I want a bigger board. So I need more. Because if you go forward... Um, Jesus stands in front of Herod. Pilate sends him over as a favor. And Jesus won't talk to him. Not a word. Won't say anything to him. At all. Okay, so I'm kind of... All right, all right. All right. I, I, I could grab this kind of narrative, uh, this narrative piece and explain how, why this is in there and what purpose it serves. And then, then this idea of the gauntlet really hit me. So the good news, the good news of the kingdom is the good news of love and a coming king, a release of captives, of power. This good news is besieged on all sides by doubters, mockers, rejectors, manipulators. And, and even the crowd, the crowd doesn't care. Even the crowd's a part of it. The crowd that presses in, that doesn't, that's fickle and turns against him. So as it were, Jesus is in the gauntlet. So he, he's going through and, and well, I'll give you a picture of what a gauntlet was. Actually, uh, the, the uh, Mohawk and the Iroquois used to do this when they got a prisoner. 
they, all, the, all the warriors would line up in two rows, and they'd make somebody run through, and they'd all stand there with sticks to hit them, to smack them. That's the gauntlet, right? That's the gauntlet. And uh, so that's, and, and, and this idea of going through a gauntlet, and it has a very ancient, even the Romans did it, it's an ancient way of punishing, or, or some, in, in modern days, hazing can be part of it. You're getting, th- there's a big, there's a great Clint Eastwood movie you used to see called The Gauntlet, by the way. Never mind. All right, so, but it's a, he tries to drive a bus through a gauntlet of people trying to kill him. I should never go off my outline. Why did I, t- I why I mentioned that? Um, so, all right, but I want you to notice, look at the first verse there of our text. And he called the 12 and began to send them out and gave them authority. Three things have happened now. Because this isn't just about Jesus. It's also about his disciples. And he does three things. He calls them. He sends them. And he gives to them. Gives them what they need. He equips them. But he equips. Uh, Equips. I don't know what they uh, equips. And then what's the first warning he gives them? People aren't going to like you. Very, very first warning. And now you begin to see why Mark is very clever. He just told the story of Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. Now he ascends the disciples and tells them, what's, what's the word? You're going to get, people are not going to like you. They're going to ask you to, you know what a prophet, uh, Frederick Buechner has a great definition, a great, one of the great novels of our time. He was a, a priest, actually. Uh, or was he a priest? No, he's a Presbyterian. And um, he has a primer about spiritual words, and he says a prophet. Definition, prophet. Somebody who never gets asked over to dinner twice. Because what are prophets always doing? Often doing. Taking everybody off. Saying what nobody else will say. And so the disciples, so there's this way, they're being rolled into the gauntlet. Christ is going down the gauntlet. What's he saying to this twilight? Come on. I am, I am calling you. This is the word of love, by the way. I'm calling you. He, this has been a part of those narrative. He's calling these men all the time. And now he's sending them. And he's sending them. And he knows this path, this gauntlet that ends in death, that ends in death. Well, it doesn't end in death, does it? It goes right, crashes through death, actually. Crashes right through death into the resurrection life of the Son of God. <laughs> the gauntlet is penetrated. It's, just, it's broken. It's, it's, it's triumphed over. But it's still real. And so here called, and, and, and then he sends. He's sending them into this, into this harrowing journey. And he's giving them and equipping them what they need. In terms of this one, this authority. And, and more it's going to be the spirit. And more it's going to be clarity. Oh, it's beautiful. So, why is it important? Why is it important that, that we talk about this today? There's a famous, um, there's a famous uh, quote that I think Kierkegaard uses, um, and a famous Danish philosopher. And he, this is the quote. It's a proverb. I think it was a Danish proverb at the time. It's a shame, because things are not in the world 
the way the parson preaches. Get it? Preacher really doesn't know what it's like out there. The preacher, the pastor, the spiritual man, the spiritual leader, you don't know what it's like, Chris, to be me. It's a shame the world isn't like the way you describe it. Now, I think, honestly, like, honestly, I mean, sincerely, guys, I, I, I've made that mistake, I think, where I have painted too idyllic a picture or not really appreciated some of the hardships of living in the world, especially when I was younger and I was a little more glib. And I could really deliver a sermon that puts you in your place. And all I could say was I was glad I was not in your place. You know what I love about this text? It's brute realism. Mark is trying to, Mark is trying to prepare you. For what? What's this world? What's this world around the gauntlet? What's the gauntlet like? What's the gauntlet like? What's here? What, what's Herod's palace like? What's going on? It's petty. It's envy. Do you hear the envious? The envy. It, it holds a grudge. What, why does Herodias want to kill her? Kill him. Because he insulted me about the incest that I don't want to hear about. So what if I'm sleeping with my brothers? We're all kind of related. It was, these are ancient marriages. The ancient marriages are all arranged to consolidate power and money. And it's sickening. We know what it does. It creates bloodlines that overmarried. This happened in Europe. Overmarried and intermarried to the point where most of these lines that we celebrate, these, these, uh, these heritages, these genealogies, are filled with insanity, <laughs> weakness, impotence. Uh, his dad, Herod, had 10 wives, and I forget how many. It's insane. It's crazy. So, um, what's the gauntlet like out there? Petty people. Petty people who have a lot of power. Does anybody know anybody like this? Petty people who have a lot of power? Um, it's amazing what a description this is of a lot of the tech leaders of, our, of this generation. <laughs> All right, petty people with a lot of power, right? And a lot of money. Now, uh, what else? Oh, envies. There's, there's these, 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 these powerful envies and awareness. Curio curious? What is it? Curious? He's curious. You know, it's, it, it's pointed out by a lot of exegetes that uh, Herod's just kind of curious. He's like, he liked listening to him. He's like, he had his own little personal preacher in the dungeon. Hey, hey, go get John. I want to, it's so, you know, he, he, he tells me I'm a bad person. Nobody does that. <laughs> Nobody, <it's, laughs> I've met men like this, men, men and women who are, find you kind of a curiosity as a preacher, a curiosity, an interesting person to have at the party. Um, petty, pout, cruel. Do you, the world that we have to live in, is, it, there's petty people in power. There's curiosity, but it's, what, what would you say? It's curiosity, but it's almost like what? Um, what's a good kind of a way to kind of describe it? It's curious, but uh, 
um, conceited in a sense. Does that make sense? Like it's like, oh, this is, it's amused. It's amused. It's looking for entertainment. What's the entertainment value of this, of this group? And that entertainment might come from your suffering as much as from you know, hearing something good you had to say. But it doesn't, it's capricious. It's mean, it's selfish, it's cruel, it's manipulative, and it's dangerous. And, and that's, that's why that story's there. I, it came so clear, that's why it's there. Because what, it, what did we just describe? Petty power that loves entertainment, is curious about new things from time to time, and amused, full of envy. Cruel. Sounds like San Francisco. Doesn't it? Sounds like this generation. All over the place. Do you get why Mark puts it in there now? Why this is such an important story? This is the gauntlet you're looking down. And the love of the king and Jesus, which is the good news of the gospel, plus zero equals everything, equals all. These people don't want zero. They won't go to zero. They will always persistently reject the gospel because they don't have power over God in it. It will always confront them. Here's one of the problems, pretty reasons I was not, I didn't want to preach on this. How am I going to convince you, Clayton, that you ought to seek to be rejected? Who's buying that one? It's like I'm selling life insurance. Nobody wants to talk to you, you know? You know? I, it's, it, I'm selling something nobody's buying. I'm selling something nobody wants to be interested in. But that's not really what's going on. And that's not really what's going on. I'm not here to sell you rejection. I'm here to kindly, pastorally, biblically tell you that as a called, sent, and equipped man and woman with the gospel of love adorning your heart, you're a new person. And this world, you're a chaopectate. I just doesn't want you. Because as you come in with this, love, the, 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 this gospel of love, Jesus plus zero creates everything. What does he say to Jairus? Don't be afraid, just believe. All of this amazing power on earth to save and rescue what's ruined and dead and rotten shows the petty power brokers who love entertainment and are amusing themselves to death in a world of envy and cruelty and caprice. What does this beautiful message of the gospel do? It shows them for what they are. And they hate it. And there's nothing we can do about it. They will hate it. They will hate you. They hate it, your master and your savior. So what's the takeaway today? What's the takeaway today? First, um, I won't ever say this. There's no point in gloating. But I'll be thinking, I told you so at some point, right? What's the power of predicting this? 
is it can normalize it. What do you do when people reject you? How do you take it? How do you tend to take it? What do you do with it? You take it personally, right? They just don't like me. What did I do wrong? I don't know how to connect with people. You know, I have a pimple on my nose. Something is wrong. I wore the wrong skirt. I wore the wrong shoes. I don't know how to talk. That email was stupid. They just don't like me. Let me give you a little. We tend to hate rejection. We tend to try to avoid rejection. But I'm telling you, in a sense, don't take it personally. Um, <laughs> Jesus, our father was very tender with Samuel at one time. Uh, Samuel was the leader of God's people. And remember, in, in this story, sometimes religious people are in this crew. Sometimes the religious people are like this. You're, we're going to be persecuted by the religious as well as by the world. Trust me. It's always like that. The true church of the gospel is always persecuted by everybody. Anyway, Samuel's been rejected. He's really depressed. And, and God says they're very precious to him. They rejected me, not you. That's a, that's a sweet word in the night when your self-esteem is going through the floor. <laughs> What's the second item of business? The second item of the thing we might learn from this. It is clear that John is actually wonderfully who he is with clarity in front of Herod, even when Herod, he's in prison with Herod. What do you know I like about that? He wasn't just an offensive idiot. I have, I have offended people for Jesus. But Jesus had very little to do with it at the time. <laughs> this is back when, this is many, it's what, this was, you know, this is like over a week ago. No, I mean, this is, no, this is back when I was in college. You know, the little fighting little crusader, Christian, Wheaton College. My Bible's bigger than your Bible, and I'm going to beat you over the head with it. My theological insight is better than your theological. There's so many foolish ways that we as Christians have brought offense. Jesus plus zero, he kills everything. <laughs> to begin to reject everything else. You're going to live for another principle in another place. And in the end, Herod doesn't even want to kill him because he likes him. Even though he's telling Herod he's going, you know, he's under judgment. <laughs> and he still wants to hear. And there's some wonderful, and it's just, I, I want, it's almost like there's almost, uh, there's something about where the gospel is really being preached, lived, loved. When the calling, sending, and giving is happening, and the kingdom of love is happening, people are offended, but at the same time going, huh. I kind of like those people, though. I, I, it's, it's a weird world where we don't fit any category. Uh, it's not, you know, Westboro Baptist, and it was often like the great illustration uh, uh, of, of uh, how to get offended for God. Oh, they're so, I, I'm pretty sure they're offending God all the time. Oh, my gosh, I, I, it's awful. It's just awful. And uh, we should be, a, oh, you know what? We should be doing we should be offending people in San Francisco and Westboro. How can we do that? Let's figure out how to do that. We need to offend both. 
I'm serious. We need to figure out, if we're, fin if we're offending the fundamentalists, and the right and the left wing at the same time, bet you we're going to be preaching the gospel. Next. Be ennobled. Be ennobled. That um, there's a moment in the New Testament. God's going to give you grace to deal with this when it comes up. It's hard for me to prep you for it, but I'm trying to normalize it so you can expect it. I'm trying to point out some of the pitfalls that are possible too. But finally, somebody uh, has anybody ever noticed that uh, I noticed this on Facebook? So I don't mind on Facebook a lot. I get really tired of it. But if you have evangelical feeds, of which I have several, that I don't know how I even got them. When people feel like our rights as Christians are being taken away, they just freak out. Have you ever seen this? It's like, ah, our rights as Christians are being taken away. We're being persecuted. And it could be really, really minor. And uh, it reminds me of the Monty Python skit where uh, in the Holy Grail, and uh, uh, King Arthur comes, and there's a, there's a peasant in the mud, and he, and he picks the peasant up because the peasant won't move. And, or he's trying to ask him. And he goes, see, see, I'm being oppressed. I'm being repressed. And he's, just ma he's, he's making it into a big, you know, see the violence inherent in the system. And he's. I wish, I wish, I wish we were worthy to be persecuted. I don't think we're worthy of it. I wish we were worthy of it. I wish we were people so alive with love and the power of the gospel. You know, um, we're talking about a unique way to walk the gauntlet. And maybe you die, but who cares if you die because he rose from the dead. Who cares? doesn't matter. So I pray for the offense in my mouth, the offense in my love, my eyes and my heart that is, is really Christ's. I'm really walking the gauntlet with him and through him and to him. And I'm free. Now that's the riddle I want to work out together at First Press together. And I, I want him to work out among us who would be such a people. Um, and maybe this will happen. The disciples got beaten. It was really early on in Acts. They got beaten badly. They got whipped, mocked, beaten. You know what they did? They went walking and praising and rejoicing God that they had been deemed worthy to suffer for his sake. <laughs> Sign me up. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd take my words and, and, and I, hope, I hope you'd make sense of them to, to my friends here and to us. And 
I know you stared right down this gauntlet. You talk about it in these texts, my dear Savior. You, uh, you seem to be so aware. You were so aware of just how much the religious and the, and the crowd and your family's denial of you, uh, that you were so aware that Pilate would, just didn't care and Herod would make, you, make sport of you, make you into a joke. You saw the gauntlet. And you didn't even flinch. You just went right in to save and rescue a people like us. I don't know what it looks like, my, my Lord. I really don't know, know what it looks like. But I pray that we would together would someday praise you when we can say we couldn't believe that we were deemed worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.